This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome writer and editor Julia Bainbridge. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Julia about non-alcoholic drinking culture, her latest book, Good Drinks, and we'll hear a Julia moment from a fellow Julia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, If you have not a good wine to use, it is far better to omit it, for a poor one can spoil a simple dish and utterly debase a noble one. Julia was not a teetotaler, as her books and television shows attest in their advocacy for drinking decent wine. We've also covered her love of a good cocktail. The difficulty Julia had wasn't staying off the drink, but finding good domestic wine after returning home from years abroad. Now, what I believe Julia implies in that quote is, if you're going to drink, drink something good, alcoholic or not. One can imagine her advising, why waste room on inferior drinks if you can instead have a second helping or dessert? At the foundation, we continually look for ways to emphasize not only Julia's encouragement around cooking, but also the importance of eating and drinking well. Someone else named Julia is in full agreement that if you're going to drink, it should be something delicious, whether or not it's alcoholic. Joining us today is James Bird Award-nominated writer and creator of the Lonely Hour podcast, Julia Bainbridge. This Julia has worked as an editor at Condé Nast Traveler, Bon Appetit, Yahoo Food, and Atlanta Magazine, and has written for Food and Wine, The Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, most often, but not exclusively, about food and drink. The Lonely Hour podcast explores social disconnection and other forms of loneliness. Julia Bainbridge joins us today to talk about good drinks, alcohol-free recipes for when you're not drinking, for whatever reason, which also just happens to be the title of her new book. Julia is on a mission to normalize socializing without alcohol, and to destigmatize loneliness. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Hi, Todd. Is all the Julia stuff going to get confusing? <laughs> I'm going to do my best. I might I might start calling you Julia B, okay. <laughs> like, a, like in elementary school. Like Julia C and Julia B. I, I was saying to Amanda before this show that, you know, you do this job with you just realize how common a name Julia is and in both people and brands and it just it's popular. It is. Um well it's very good to be here. Thanks for well, having me. Although I can't say that I have when in my drinking days, I can't say I followed 
the other Julia's rule and always drank the most delicious wine. Sometimes it was just about <laughs> the alcohol. <laughs> that does happen. And I'm sure Julia would admit to, to uh, drinking plonk at various <laughs> times. I think two buck chuck was kind of after her heyday, but um, that is true. So tell us more about your mission to promote what, what you label good drinks. Well, um, I mean, I removed alcohol from my life at a time when serendipitously alcohol-free cocktails were being taken more seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, something was happening. And again, it was just serendipitous that like there had never been a better time to be a non-drinker at the time I decided to be one. And bartenders were were pushing against the boundaries that had previously limited mocktails to these syrup-laden juices. Um, the imagination of the drinks world was moving beyond the Shirley Temple. And so I wanted to to capitalize on that newfound acceptance and energy and to to track the innovation and to celebrate these drinks. And so I feel very privileged to be able to explore something in my work that um, I have an interest in personally. Um, and, and that's about it. Yeah. Well, and obviously you have your personal reasons for cho choosing to remove alcohol or, or avoid it, but you kind of hit on the, there's a time and a movement that seems to be expanding where more and more people are interested in non-alcoholic drinks and not drinking, as you say, for whatever reason. And what have you either, maybe you found it after the fact rather than intentionally dived into it, but what have you found is be behind this kind of movement? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely think something, you know, I, I came a little bit after the fact, or at least while something was taking shape, right? Because, you know, I, I was through the book and through my writing, I'm reflecting what was actually happening in the industry. And so the industry must have been responding to a consumer need or or something else. Right. I think the evolution of our drinking habits has been taking shape for for a little while now. Um, there's that big word wellness, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're more conscious of what we put in our bodies. We read the labels. We like to know where things come from. I think also um, under that umbrella comes our waking up to some of the more subtle dangers of alcohol. Um, now I'm not like anti-alcohol, but I do think that, um, you know, it would be good to pay attention to the ways in which, again, it might more subtly be affecting our lives. Someone who drinks, you know, a drink a night might not meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder, but that doesn't mean alcohol isn't a problem for them. Maybe they're experiencing some sleep impairment, maybe a little next day anxiety or weight gain um, or some other consequence that may be meaningful to them and disrupting their lives, again, in smaller ways than the ones we associate with those struggling with alcohol use disorder, right? So, you know, I think you've got a few things coming together. There's there's that piece of it. I do think little by little, the stigma around around substance use disorder is, is losing strength. Um, and then there's the pandemic. <laughs> And um, obviously, I filed the manuscript for the book before I uh, before this happened. Um, but um, it has certainly um, affected our drinking. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that in a second. But I think you you touched on something that is really interesting in that particularly Western, at least not necessarily white dominated, but waspy kind of based culture uh, and others but particularly in the West centers around socializing and drinking being very common components that if you're going to socialize, you know, you would be expected to serve drinks or have a drink or go for drinks. And I think that's evolved a little. There's more, can we go for coffee than I think there, there used to be, but it it's pretty deeply embedded in, in at least pre-print pandemic socialization and and do you think that's possibly where the demand for non-alcoholic but drinks that look like cocktails and wine came from? I mean, yeah, I think that like gathering around a drink is is 
really effective for social connection, right? Like you have a reason for coming together. You have something to delight you while you're, you know, chatting with your friend. Um, but you are not distracted by, say, paintings on the wall of a museum, you know, I mean, there are other activities we can do together, right? We can go to museums, we can play soccer games, um, and that's all well and good. But I think, you know, when if you really want to deeply connect and have conversation, um, then you gather around food or drink face to face, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so, of course, then when it comes to the alcoholic drinks, there's the social lubrication factor in that, you know, alcohol is very effective, Um stress reliever, you know, and sort of helps you unwind. But but I don't think that the alcohol needs to be present for um, gathering around a drink to still be a great uh, social activity. I mean, did you sense? find? Yeah, yeah, of course. And and um, I was curious, though, because there is that and I think in many people, it's a strongly held belief that, you know, you need the lubrication of alcohol where it, where your inhibitions are are loosened to, to relax. And I think that's stronger for some people than others. But in, in your work on this book and in writing about the subject, have you found that some of it, is, it seems to be more psychological than physiological or the physiological part is quite strong? I think the physiological part is strong, but I think if you need this um, substance to, to facilitate socializing, um, perhaps you would do well to engage in some kind of anxiety reducing exercises or be in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point, right? Oh, I, so I think you're saying yes, most people physiologically get lubricated, but it is a certain group of people who may find it uh, difficult to socialize at all without that lubrication. Yes. <laughs> okay. And for those yes. who can manage alcohol, like that lubrication is great. Enjoy it, right? And by manage, I mean, for those who can um, consistently enjoy alcohol and all it gives us in terms of flavor and the mood altering effect that we're talking about, if you can do that without abusing it, then, you know, I'm all for it. No, and, and I, I think you put that across quite effectively in, in, in what you said and what you write about. But I also think it, it stands to reason, too, that there's sort of like not a level playing field, even if you are drinking alcohol, because just your the way your body metabolizes substances, in, in particular alcohol, and your size relative to your peers matter. So it also affects like if people of varying sizes and backgrounds get together, the the quantity consumed is not consistent really yeah I, I suppose that could apply to sugar too but i think to a lesser degree yeah so i guess my hope is that it becomes about the drinks and not the alcohol right that like drinks are still a great thing around which to socialize um what what is contained um in that glass um in terms of whether or not it has a drug in it <laughs> um is less important well, and I think you touched upon in your example of, oh, you can go to a museum, but there is something special that I think gets very tied to alcohol, but isn't the only part. If you think about bar and pub and various nightclub atmospheres, the fact that they're generally turned inward and dim and decorated in a certain way, they all facilitate a focus on who you're with or who you're trying to, to meet in a way that is culturally, societally unique. Yeah. And just, and just, it's, it's set up and, you know, you're sitting on two sides of a table, you're looking into, you know, at one another's faces, as opposed to you're both watching a movie, uh, you know, and looking at a screen or um, doing any of the other activities we mentioned, like it's, it's, um, it's conducive to, to connection and good conversation. So as we're having a good conversation, let's we started to talk about the pandemic because I think it certainly has had um, both an impact and, and made people think quite a lot about some of these social habits, both the ones they miss and the ones that they might struggle with. And, you know, I thought it was interesting to ask you because you started the Lonely Hour podcast well before the pandemic. And then I know you've done some since. But I was curious about your observations about the pandemic's impact, both on alone time and, and our drinking habits. 
Well, we certainly all have a lot of alone time. Well, actually, I don't know. That's that's not true. I, I've never been happier to be childless, and I don't envy <laughs> um, those of my friends who can't find any alone time because they are always with, you know, their partners and or children. Um, so I don't know. There's no one, one sort of thing to say about it. But, uh, you know, in terms of our drinking habits, you know, many of us heard about the rise in alcohol sales last March and April. I think... The alcohol delivery service Drizzly reported a 439% increase in orders, um, which makes sense. We were at home, so spending more money on on drinks um, this way, direct to consumer, rather than you know at bars and restaurants. And also, as we said before, alcohol is, you know, it is an effective. Um, we we talked about social lubricant, but also emotional pain reliever. You know, and a lot of us uh, uh, turned to it to soothe our stress, you know, drinking works. Um, it does help take away some of that stress and help you relax while you're drinking, but not the day after, right? So I think like since then, you know, I've seen a number of things happening. Um, some people have changed that behavior and kind of after, you know, those are the people for whom cocktail hour had returned, right? They settled into a new style of drinking. This was a way to punctuate the day when you don't have a workplace um, to leave. And, you know, now you're in your personal time in home or at a third space like bar or restaurant, like the way that you separate the workday from, you know, me time is, is the drink, right? So that, that return that some people found themselves drinking more than ever before. Right. So, Mm, um, mm. and, and then after a while of that, there were, uh, negative consequences. So now, you know, they've stopped, but they want to keep that ritual. You know, they've removed the alcohol, but they still want to have a drink because that's that's still the way to um, break up the day. Um, and those are the people, you know, uh, as well as, you know, the alcohol-free set who is always, you know, sober, if you will, who are driving the sales of these alcohol-free products. And many of them have come onto the market during this time. Um, one of my favorites, it's an aperitif called Gia, um, not for nothing, side note, was named best new drink of the year um, in Esquire. I think that says something about a shifting culture, right? Um, but uh, for them, dry January, yes, was huge and and bigger than December, which was bigger than November, the founder, um, Melanie Mazarin, a French woman, told me. Um, but she expected sales to drop after the first week or two of the month when resolutions kind of tend to be renegotiated. But they were seeing a strong and sustained sales through the end of January. And similarly, um, for Curious Elixirs, which is a, a bottled non-alcoholic cocktail brand, um, January saw more than double the sales of other months, but um, 2021 seems to be a tipping point, like sales quadrupled. Um, And while they've seen sales dip towards the end of the month, meaning January in years past, they they accelerated at the end of January, um, signaling that this is becoming like a lasting lifestyle for many, perhaps, you know? Um, So I think that um, perhaps what I'm saying is, there was a lot of heavy drinking and uh, a, a set of that population is changing that behavior. Um, of course, there for some, there was a lot of heavy drinking and um, these are people who are going to be dealing with the consequences, unfortunately, right? Like um, I think there are many people who, you know, struggle with alcohol use disorder who have slipped back into their addictions. Um, At the same time, there are lots of people who have been using this time as an opportunity to explore their relationships with alcohol. Um, You know, people who thought maybe they kind of always might've had a problem. um, And this is a great time to explore it because there are no awkward social encounters or business meetings, you know, no, no unwanted questions. So um, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm all over the place a little bit, but I, it's, it's. A no, lot I think you made on. your point. And, <laughs> and, and I think actually in what you just said, yeah, it is interesting for anyone who could excuse certain habits or behaviors because, oh, well, I'm doing this because I need to or I have to for work or whatever. The pandemic removed a lot of those things and you really had had yourself or your your immediate family or who you live with to look in the mirror without those kind of constraints. And then maybe on the more positive side, I was thinking about when you were talking about 
people, for whatever reason, the pandemic, dry January, discovering non-alcoholic drinks or cocktails that were special or unique or made for grown-ups. And also one thing we haven't touched on is the sort of movement away from old-fashioned soda because of its content and how it's made that people are doing that. But I was thinking it was sort of like, it's like Mad Men and that series and how it started. And it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. and What a wonderful time. And then it all sort of disintegrates into hell. And it's sort of like Mad Men <laughs> with all the benefit and not the end result. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back to talk with Julia Bainbridge about her latest book, Good Drinks, Alcohol-Free Recipes for When You're Not Drinking for Whatever Reason. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19 through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Welcome back. We're about to make you very thirsty. We're getting into the mouth-watering details. We're talking to Julia Bainbridge about her new cookbook, Good Drinks, Alcohol-Free Recipes for When You're Not Drinking for Whatever Reason. So one of the things, Julia, I was struck with in the book is you write that the best drinks are memorable. So I wanted to ask you, you did a lot of research and you narrowed it down to kind of a top 50 or so recipes. And so for the ones you picked, what made them so memorable to you? That is a good question. First of all, I want to thank you for calling this a cookbook um, and not just a drinks book, because I think that's a, a point I try to impress upon readers is that like really to make these drinks, you, you're going to have to roll your sleeves up and, and cooking. I mean, again, this, this, the manuscript for this book was filed before a lot of these new products that you can lean on to make really mm. complex, delicious alcohol-free drinks came into the market. So um, you can, you know, open a bottle of Gia, which I mentioned before, mix that with a bit of tonic uh, or soda water and call it a day. Right. But, Mm -hmm. um, before I think I filed the manuscript when really seed lip was the only alcohol free spirit that was, um, accessible. Um, and so a lot of these bartenders were building these things from scratch. And if you want to get bitterness, you might have to source some gentian root. If you want to get some complexity, you might have to get out your stock pot and steep a bunch of different teas (laughs) and (laughs) and things. So, you know, I think um, I'm someone who likes that kind of tinkering. And so to me, it's, it's really interesting, but in terms of um, what ones were memorable or, or, you know, why did these drinks make the cut? Um, Cause I really did cast a wide net. I got in my car I have such nostalgia for that trip now because I was just moving about so freely Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and basically lived, you know, in my car who is no longer with us, Greta. I drove her into the ground. Um, (laughs) uh, My Subaru Impreza. She was a 2006 model, though. So, you know, she was on her last legs anyway, I think. But um, she did you proud. She did me proud. And she she she's bits of her are now in New Jersey somewhere. Uh, she's her parts have been harvested to become other things, I think, but um, she's an organ donor to boot. Yes. Um, but you know, I wanted to, I drove across the country. I, I, you know, lived this way for months to really, um, get a sense of what was going on here. Um, in a way, I feel like this book is a snapshot of approaches to alcohol-free, you know, cocktail building at the time. Um, and the ones I chose the, you know, one, it had to be a level up from a fizzy lemonade. Uh, it had to do the work of fighting against the bad reputation this category has of the drinks being too sweet. Mm, mm. <laughs> and if sweetness 
was the prominent taste, then there had to be something going on in the recipe that made that acceptable. Um, and it had to surprise me. And this one's a little bit harder to, to explain without sort of going through every drink in the book. But, um, you know, the book isn't necessarily for bartenders. I think um, a lot of drinkers, for example, don't salt their cocktails at home. You know, I think that there are um, some drinks in here that serve to educate us. Um, and then there are ones that just surprise us. I mean, there's miso in one of these drinks, for example. <laughs> well, do you want, do, would it help to get specific? Cause I wanted to ask you to just kind of call out particularly the book is organized in a specific way, particularly in terms of sort of the occasion. And one of you feature just like everyday weeknight drinks, and then you have party recipes and going out ones. So what, maybe just start with like, what are a couple of your favorites that, you know, are less time intensive and maybe more likely to have ingredients on hand that you would whip up on a weeknight? Yeah. I mean, thanks for pointing that out in terms of the the breakdown of the book. I think before I answer your question, you know, it's the reasons you reach for an alcohol-free drink are just as diverse as the reasons you reach for an alcoholic drink, right? And, and should be given the same attention. So that's why I broke the book down into the chapters that I did splitting it into times of day. Sometimes you drink to relax, to connect, to let loose, to toast the end of the day. And these drinks all satisfy those um, diverse needs. Um, but if I'm, let's see, a, a, like a weeknight easy drink? Yeah, well, I'm just thinking if you're just drinking, you know, you want a cocktail for yourself, you were talking about the ritual many people have found in the pandemic is a way to break the day or signal like, okay, I'm done working, I'm drawing a line on the sand, but I'm not entertaining, I'm not expecting to that. And I'm also tired. So I, I don't feel like using the blender. <laughs> so my go to and this may not be um, well, actually, maybe listeners of this particular show would have this ingredient on hand. My favorite drink in the book, um, which is and it's on the cover for that reason is the Verju spritz. And I love it because it's three ingredients that none of which you make yourself, they are all bottled and you open those bottles and pour them into a wine glass in equal parts and add some ice and you're done. So it's um, white verju, which um, your listeners may have used to finish dishes or in salad dressings, but I would, I'd urge you to move your verju to the bar um, mm -hmm. and drink it um, because it, it has that kind of soft acidity um, to it that's that's so elegant. So you balance that out with equal parts, tonic water and soda water. Tonic water brings you a little sweetness and bitterness, and then the soda water's there to kind of let it all breathe a little bit and prevent you from getting too sweet. I think if you just had equal parts verju and tonic water, you might get into that territory. So um, that with, you know, salty Utz potato chips and olives at 6 p.m., great. And it kind of sounds like, would you say it's somewhere in the range of just comparing it to what the alcohol equivalent would be is like a champagne cocktail or a white wine spritzer sort of I'd feel? I'd say, yeah, like white wine about spritzer is a good, a good, yeah, I would say that. Very like nice. Like a great way to, something to drink um, maybe while you're making dinner, you know, to sort of get the appetite going. It also sounds like it'd be perfect if you, we talked about at the top of the show about well-being part of the movement toward non-alcoholic and people, um, particularly listeners of the show who might be home cooks, catering to, you know, about 20 million different dietary needs at a summer lunch party. If you're having vegans and vegetarians or a lot of people who are quite health conscious, serving that as your kind of summer lunch but party drink could be a, a fun thing. Yeah. And then one way I like to level it up, um, and this does involve sugar, so maybe um, this is less for the people who are um, into wellness with a capital W, um, but uh, <laughs> is the saffron charbat. So it kind of it has the same um, ingredients, but you just make this saffron infused syrup. So that's um, it's, it's saffrony and um, a little bit of orange flower water in there. So you get that floral note um, and you mix that in with the white verju and some soda water and a lemon twist. And um, so it's just a, a kind of different version of the verju spritz, but you get the, the, that. I love saffron. I love saffron in savory dishes. I love it in sweet dishes, you know, and I think, um, yeah, this is another go-to. And it adds in, makes the color a little bit more, um, gives it some depth. You know, it's really like a golden looking drink. 
<clears throat> and we should talk about syrups for a second because on the one hand it's kind of like oh you have to make that but they're really easy to make and once you make them you can make a batch and it go and like once you've it's just level to me speaking of things that level things up they just kind of enhance everything and particularly if you make them at home then you're not adding whatever stabilizers or chemicals that are used to make them shelf stable so do you have anything to say about syrups because they're a big part of a lot of the recipes right yeah, I totally agree with what you say, that they're fairly easy to make. There are a bunch of different methods for making them. You can heat them up. You can just put the ingredients in a you know, blender and it comes together. Um, Google it and you will find many <laughs> methods for making infused uh, simple syrups. But um, usually, yes, they're just equal parts sugar and water and then whatever element you're using to flavor it. Um, and they're key to alcohol-free drinks because while alcohol is such an effective flavor extractor, you you don't have that um, when it comes to these drinks. And so the the, the syrup is a great way to carry um, flavor that you wouldn't be able to get into the drink through, you know, just citrus juices or whatever else. So you can um, bring in an herbal element. You can make a coffee syrup. You can, um, you name it. Um, so, and, and yes, you make it once it stays good in the fridge for, I don't know, two, but I've pushed it sometimes to three weeks and you can make a big batch. Now, I can't remember if there are any recipes for this, but one of my go-to non-alcoholic but feel like a grown-up at the end of the day, I do have kids during a pandemic, so I know what you're talking about, before, (laughs) um, is elderflower and elderflower cordial. And you mix that with, you know, you put it over ice with sparkling water, club soda, and a twist and it's delicious. Did did you? I I do not have that in there, but so how do you make your elderflower cordial? I buy it. <laughs> but you and can make it. Elder, elderflower cordial, I think, is harder to make because you have to somehow – I've read how it's made because I was curious. But it it's more complex in that I think you have to steep elderflower for – like you have to do something to the, the natural elderflower a lot more than like mint or something like that. I see. Which, you know, again, when you say complex, you just mentioned steeping. It's – really not a complex technique, like finding the elderflower, yes, may take some doing. But once you have it, you're just letting it sit in warm water, essentially. Yeah, no. Well, no, you might be right. That's right. It's like, I think, because I think I read a whole thing about where you find it and and it's um, kind of like chamomile. But yes, Mm -hmm. I think that's my highly recommended and, and particularly the most simple. But let's move from the simple to the complicated, or or maybe not. But I wanted to ask you, because you have great recipes also for like, if you're hosting a party and you want to go out non-alcoholic or offer guests a non-alcoholic option, you have a whole set of drinks for that. And I was curious which ones you, like particularly if maybe you're going to do this for the first time and you haven't been to bartending school, um, <laughs> What do you have one recipe that you're like, oh, maybe you should start with this one because it's fun and it might wow your guests, but isn't going to overtax you in, in, in the getting started? Well, it depends on the situation and what you're eating. But I would say if if we're talking about, let's see, when are we really going to be able to move about more freely? Let's knock on wood, hope by the summer we can gather. Um, so poolside in the summer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, I think you can capitalize on all of the great non-alcoholic beers there are now and make a like a Rattler, a grapefruit Rattler. So that would just require you to get non-alcoholic beer, which by the way, because it's alcohol-free, you can get it shipped to you um, yeah. pretty easily. Um, so it's, it's the non-alcoholic beer, a, a bit of simple syrup, and otherwise freshly squeezed juices. So some grapefruit juice, a little lemon juice. Um, You can mix a little soda water in there um, to take some of the edge off. But really you're just, yeah, you combine the juices, um, the simple syrup, uh, soda water in in a glass and top it with beer. And that's it. I'm sure you could make that a pitcher drink pretty easily if you were, um, you know, filling your guests glasses quickly and not letting it sit there while the the fizz goes out. and so it kind of ends up like a Pims without alcohol in it a little bit? Kind of. I do have a sort of alcohol-free Pims that's a little bit more involved. Um, but 
it's just a Rattler. You know, I mean, you have a, you have Rattlers, you know, with alcoholic beer, it's just an alcohol-free version of that. I've never had that. So I, I was just trying to imagine it, but that, yeah. and, and so what is the, out the, is that a drink that's trying to kind of be an alcohol free version of a drink people know, or is it just a certain fa- flavor profile that the non-alcoholic beer, because it's brewed, adds to the drink? I think, let's see, for this particular recipe developer, probably he was just making an alcohol-free version of something you know, but he was capitalizing on the fact that there are all these delicious alcohol-free beers now. Mm. Um, and I think it's just such a great summer drink because you're, you don't have a whole, you know, beer, which can feel kind of heavy. It's really brightened up with these, with these juices, um, kind of, a you know, a, a half, a beer lemonade, if you will. <laughs> it's just, you know, a beautiful drink that's not fully lemonade. You're going to get a little bitterness and depending on what kind of beer you go for, if, you know, kind of breadiness, toastiness, um, that just adds another layer of complexity, kind of makes it adult. Yes. And that seems to be a common characteristic that it's the complexities of the flavors and the flavor profile that makes a lot of these drinks stand out and and makes them adult and also makes them worthwhile. Like we talked about at the top of the show, obviously, well, obviously people I think are still learning that drinks like food uh, uh, convey calories. So if you're going to take in the calories, you might as, in my view, make it worthwhile. Um, but is it that, that that a lot of what makes these drinks special and worth drinking is they have complexity to the, the flavor and the taste profile? Absolutely. I mean, you do have – this book was meant to be a compendium and kind of show you a, a big range. So it's hard to say kind of one thing about this collection. Um, but – but yes, I think one of the reasons why these drinks, you know, stayed with me as I drove around thinking what deserves to, you know, take up a page in this book was that they're the kinds of things that, um, I mean, I don't know, some of them like the grapefruit rattler, sure, that's a little bit more complex than just a lemonade because it has the beer in there. Um, but certainly that's less complex than some of the others. And I'd say the complexity that comes from something um like some of the level four recipes is, is part of what makes it adult because it slows us down. I think if we were also talking about, you know, connection and I think part of feeling included and connected to your friends is if you're drinking sort of in pace with them. And, you know, before a lot of these drinks had been developed that um, required you to slow down, sip them slowly, think about, you know, try to pick apart the flavors, think about what you're drinking. I think that's part of what makes them adult, right? Um, Mm. You would have these things that were sweet and often, you know, fizzy. It's just in a Collins glass and you kind of crush it while your friends who are slowly sipping their whiskey as it unfolds, <laughs> you know, are, are still on their first round. And so I think there's there's something to that, too, that the complexity um, helps you all stay um, with one another, if you will. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, we've teased people enough about these really complex drinks. So I think we have to talk, you, ha- you have to pick one for us that uh, demonstrates some of the, the multi-step process processes that then end you up with with a pretty uh, special concoction. Yes, that's I have the book right here and I'm flipping through it. I mean, some I would say um, here's one that is meant to um, kind of mimic a wine. Um, and it's got it's called the upbeat. It comes from Brandon Tepper from Angler in San Francisco. Um, and you really get these robust tannins in the drink because you have a mixture you have you have um, tea, you know, Tea is such an important ingredient to building these drinks. Um, so you have oolong tea and beet juice um, and a little bit of pomegranate juice. And those three things um, really do, it's it's just robust. And it gives you, without using a syrup, a nice weighty mouthfeel, which is, I think, another thing that people comment about missing in alcohol-free drinks, that they feel thin. Um, and this, because of um, the tea in these juices, especially the beet juice, um, really is hefty in a good way, <laughs> if you will. Um, and then, and you do have some drinks, because I, I, I feel like we have to cover one that kind of move into grasshopper territory, where they're blended and then have a foam on them. And you, you talk about that. Can you give us one of the example of one of the ones that that um, is is very memorable for you and from when you first had it to putting it into the book? Let's see. Well, 
I don't know if this satisfies the the foam on top. There are some. I mean, I keep going back <laughs> to the billows and, and thieves, which is a mixture of it's um, coffee and grapefruit juice and like a cardamomy um, infused syrup, um, and that the sort of bitterness on bitterness of the grapefruit juice and and cold brew um, really works. And you shake the heck out of it, and you get this beautiful foam on top in a coupe. Um, but one that is definitely uh, complex um, that I have been impressed with even one person making from the book, <laughs> but <laughs> certainly, you know, um, the first really like sophisticated non-alcoholic drink that stayed on my mind for, um, you know, weeks, months, and I guess apparently years now um, <laughs> is is the champagne from Atera in New York. And, you know, that is made from, from you make a tea or a tisane from white pine needles. So you, you have that. Um, and you mix in some acids, you know, powdered acids, tartaric, lactic, and malic acids, which give you a kind of um, champagne-y quality. So you make this tea, you sweeten it a little bit with sugar and honey, you add in these acids, you carbonate it, and you do really get this um, brightly acidic, effervescent, um, piney, yes, piney drink. <laughs> that. And it, it may seem intimidating. Really, the hard part is gathering the ingredients. And after that, it's just steeping and stirring. Um, but um, yeah, that, that really impressed me. That, that, that was the thing that blew my mind when I tasted it. Also, because at Atera, they, um, you know, bottle it and present it to you in the restaurant. And it has a label on it. And I had never um, been treated this way as a non-drinker. <laughs> Um, before, before that, I think I first had that drink when I was still drinking actually, um, but Mm. still ordered it and was very impressed. Um, no, that is true. There's something about the ritual of, there's a big difference between being granted a special bottle with an upscale non-alcoholic drink than versus just having a Shirley Temple slapped on the table where it's like kind of sticky on the glass and an afterthought. And, and that part of the elevation is the presentation, whether it's alcoholic or not, I think. Absolutely. And that's part of what led to my just being kind of moved by this movement, if you will, is that like, you know, I luckily I'm somebody who, so I, I had removed alcohol from my life, but I was out at bars and restaurants with friends. Luckily, I'm someone who, you know, was not like triggered by being in those environments. And um, I was looking for things to drink that, you know, weren't soda and weren't water. And it was impossible not to notice that these drinks were taking up more real estate on menus and were being given names, just like the, you know, regular quote unquote cocktails were being given names. You know, they were... Um, really treated with care. And that was a change. And I I think that um, in that way, the um, industry has really had, you know, power to shift a paradigm. I I spoke to someone who runs a visual communications agency for a story about this very thing, you know, menu design specifically. And she spoke to the influence that bars can have. And, you know, she said a menu can be incredibly psychological. You know, how important do you feel considering what you're associating with on the menu, if you're associating with the thing that's discarded and not celebrated, uh, then that's how you feel, right? And often uh, before this sort of movement started taking shape, anybody who didn't drink and was going to a restaurant knows where to go to find the options for them. You turn the menu over and look at the bottom, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it's like Um, the back far corner over on the right, but in very small type. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's exciting that, you know, they've bubbled more to the surface. Um, and, um, that goes with the presentation, just as you said. Um, I remember, uh, being, I was in Los Angeles at this point, um, during research and staying with a friend, um, Alex Shapiro, I'll give her a shout out here. She's been a dear friend of mine since we were five years old. Um, and I had a bottle of Seedlip with me. Her mother, um, her parents, who I know very well, of course, because we grew up together, were visiting her at the time. And I put this bottle of, of Seedlip on the table. Um, her mother, who has stopped drinking later in life, um, the way her eyes lit up when she saw this bottle, which, um, for those who haven't seen it, is is a be- just beautiful packaging, beautiful shape, you know, absolutely looks like it should take up real estate on the bar cart, um, looks very at home next to any other spirit, you know. Um, and she said, I, I'm always out with my girlfriends and they order wine. And then I get this stripy straw 
and some <laughs> pink fizzy drink. And oh my gosh, what is this thing? And she hadn't tasted it yet, but it was strictly the visuals that um, just delighted her. She was so excited to have something that looked chic um, and alcohol-free. That's so nice. All right, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, Julia is going to share her own Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. For more drinking commentary from Julia Child, a new book of her quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Kanaf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Julia, what's your Julia moment? It's it's more than a moment, but and Todd, you need to correct me on the history if I'm wrong about this. Okay, but I will. Based on my research or my knowledge of Julia Child, you know, things popped off, if you will, for her sort of later in life or at at, at middle age. Correct, um yeah. Yes, Mastering the Art of French Cooking was published when she was 49, I think. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's a great foil to the stress we all feel when we see the annual Forbes 30 under 30 list. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, those are so mean. um, We have this feeling that we um, need to be successful now or should have been when we were young and that if you're not, then you're doomed. Um, And I think that Julia's career... Um, and life. Wasn't she married at 34? Well, yes, I can't remember exactly how old she was, but she was, yeah, would have been considered a spinster in her day. And exactly right. Yeah. 34, not, not old by any means, but I imagine, um, well, for when she was was living late. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm 38 and unmarried and I think I just found the love of my life. We'll see. Um, and, uh, and also, I'm sort of after a career of being kind of a generalist in my food writing came to came to this this beat of alcohol free drinks um, somewhat later into it. Um, And um, in fact, starting grad school to I'll continue writing about this, but I'm beginning grad school in the fall to do something um, completely different and starting sort of a whole another career that may dovetail nicely into the loneliness stuff that you mentioned at the top of the episode. So I'm inspired by by Julia um, taking her time to come to um, her true passions and success. Oh, that's great. And I think that that is one of the symbolic things that so many people appreciate appreciate about Julia and what she accomplished and what she represents, that it's never too late and that there's not one age when you can discover your passion. And if it is later than you would have liked or other people expected, it doesn't matter. It's still worthwhile. And um, I thank you for for selecting that inspiration from Julia. Yeah, there's there's one other in, in case um, too many people have used that as their Julia moment. <laughs> <laughs> there are no limits. There are no limits. <laughs> I think that um, also the time she took with the projects themselves, I think I read somewhere she spent as many as 19 hours preparing for each half hour segment of, of um, you know, one of her shows and that um, it took 10 years of devoting herself to writing and testing and rewriting for um, the book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And um, I think also in this era when we're publishing so much <laughs> and so fast. Um, I'm comforted um, by Julia's having taken her time um, because that's what I require too, to do good work. And I constantly feel like my peers are able to be excellent and do it you know, quickly and often. And I'm not quite that way. I, I um, need to take more time, publish things 
um, more slowly. And um, Julia is my the patron saint of that for me. <laughs> That's true. I think Julia was very thorough. And I think for you, Julia, I think for those who check out your book, you'll see that it's a very sensitively and deeply crafted work with, as we've talked about, many layers of complexity, um, which I really appreciated. And I know Julia would have. And I think that that is much to be admired and some sometimes, but not always underappreciated. And I kind of hope we're moving and continuing to move in an age where, where that in many facets of living as we become less materialistic and more concerned with learning and experiences is valued. I agree with you. That may be one of the silver linings of the pandemic that for those of us who are privileged to be at home and safe, um, we've also been forced to slow down. And um, I have realized that um, I function much better with a less full social calendar. I certainly miss my friends, but I think that this is teaching me about um, some of the ways in which I want to um, live when we emerge from this. Well, that's nice. And I think Julia would have said it too. Balance. The balances. There was a bit of a mania, particularly amongst people interested in food and drink, that you had to just be out all the time, right. you know, photographing your food. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your your knowledge and inspiration of good drinks. Thank you, Todd. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Again, the book is Good Drinks, Alcohol-Free Recipes for When You're Not Drinking for Whatever Reason by Julia Brainbridge with mouth-watering photographs by Alex Lau. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. You can check out JuliaBainbridge.com for links to more of her work. It's at Julia Bainbridge on Twitter and Instagram. Keep up with the foundation and about new podcast episodes by following at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. We'll soon post the calendar of events for this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience which you won't want to miss. Even if you can't get to Santa Barbara, you'll still be able to participate. And if you want to follow along on Instagram at SB Culinary Experience, you'll have all the latest news as soon as it's out. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>